The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. The FT has reported that there has been skyrocketing reporting to the whistleblower hotline, so we will try and get some data on that. For that woman, it was an institutional failure that drove her to the press. Some of the world's largest also investment banks have started distancing themselves from hedge fund manager Crispin Odie. This comes after fresh allegations of sexual assault against women over several decades. A law firm representing Odie has strenuously disputed the allegations. Hello, I'm Caroline Hugg. And I'm Olivia Bibble. And we're here today to talk about sexual harassment in the investment industry. MPs have launched an inquiry into the barriers faced by women in finance called sexism in the city. During the first Treasury hearing, panellists discussed the multiple allegations against hedge fund manager Chris Binodi. It was made clear that sexual harassment is rife in the city and that the institutions within it are either unwilling or unable to put a stop to it. We should note that Chris Binodi has denied the allegations. While discussing sexual harassment in the industry, we weren't actually aware of the potential resources women could seek should they experience sexual harassment in the industry. This podcast explores those resources further as we speak to HR experts, lawyers, the FCA, and journalists to understand what happens if someone comes forward. So, what would be your first port of call should something like this happen? Well, if it happens at work, that would most likely be the firm's HR department. We spoke to HR heads Heather Inglis from Aberdeen, Rachel Whelans from Janice Henderson and Penny Cole from Quilter to find out more about their HR practices. All three had the same formal procedures. This included a grievance policy and a whistleblowing hotline. One of the surprising differences in practice that we encountered was that in Aberdeen's case, employees' first point of contact would be their line manager. Colleagues are encouraged in the first instance to go to their line manager to raise any kind of concerns, which is a fairly standard route. Obviously, if it is to do with your line manager, there is a there is another route that's available to you and you can go through HR and or you can go you know, to your second line manager, etc. There is an investigation that would be that would be launched, and it's all managed by a specialist uh, case team within the organisation. All three firms also stressed that they have obligations to both the complainant and the accused. If there needs to be an ongoing relationship, working relationship between two people after a complaint has been raised, then. We work with those people to to mediate that, to mitigate that, to make sure there's ground rules in place. You know, what can often be just such a sensitive subject, right? Like if you've got to the point where you're raising a complaint against somebody, then, then, you know, you are usually in a place where, where you're feeling very sensitive and vulnerable. So how do we make sure that both parties can continue to work in that environment when we have got to a point of something, you know, really delicate? being being raised. So our, our shift then goes to, okay, how do we break, make you both safe and, and enable to continue to work together? 
I think what's interesting about this is that this obligation to both the complainant and the accused discourages victims from coming to HR. During the first Treasury meeting of the Sexism in the City inquiry, Dame Helena Morrissey talked about the findings from her Safe Space initiative. The really striking thing from all 20 of the testimonies that have come forward is the fear factor. And it has really taken my breath away, if I'm honest, because there is such nervousness about if their confidence is broken, it's women that come forward. There's also um, testimony that in each time where the women have escalated that what's happened to them, it has made their working lives worse. The initiative was created as a direct response to the allegations made against Crispin Odie. It offers those who have witnessed or experienced harassment to come forward anonymously to share their story and seek help. Since its launch, 17 individuals have come forward with their accounts. The common thread between them was a fear of coming forward, which partly stemmed from a distrust in HR who were perceived as protecting the firm rather than the employee. Aberdeen acknowledged the distrust in HR and added that because the investment industry is small, there's a fear that if nothing happens with your complaint, that may follow the individual into their next job. There are a host of reasons that that people will will have a sort of fear of of coming forward. I think the fear that nothing will be will be done about it, or the fear that actually the rep- retribution will come back on on you as an individual rather than on the perpetrator or the potential perpetrator. I think the fear that it will damage your career without there being any kind of retribution, um, you know, to resolve the the issue, um, is a is a big one. I think the that people know that it's a it's a relatively small industry and I, I think there's a worry that actually if you raise a concern somewhere and then move to another organization that will follow you and that that will be known. The Safe Space Initiative has inspired Aberdeen to find an independent champion. This would create impartiality during the investigative process as the champion would not be responsible for protecting the organization. There's a concern about HR's on the side of the business and you always take the line manager's side and you're there to protect the organization um, and and that there isn't the impartiality. Now our case team are trained professionals but they do work for Aberdeen and of course they're sitting you know thinking about how to protect the organization through some of this and so one of the things that we are exploring now is do we have a, a kind of independent champion for employees who would be able to support them through this process? HR departments, as well-meaning as they might be, are ultimately liable to both parties in a situation like this. If your HR department has proved unhelpful, it might be time to seek some legal advice. There are three legal routes you can take. The first option is to go to the police, which could lead to a criminal case. The government would file a case against the perpetrator, an evidence threshold would need to be met, and if the perpetrator is found guilty, they'd either face jail time or a penalty. It's worth noting that the most recent Home Office figures have reported a less than 2% conviction rate for sexual assault in the UK. Another option is a civil case. It's not a criminal offence. Victims can choose to sue their perpetrator or company civilly. Should the perpetrator be found liable for damages, they'd have to pay the complainant a form of compensation. Finally, you have the option of going through an employment tribunal. This is where Jeremy Coy comes in. He's an employment lawyer at Russell Cooks. If effectively her complaints aren't dealt with um, with sufficient seriousness, and I think that's obviously what's come out of a lot of this, you know, the evidence and a lot of the sex in the city inquiry is a fear from employees, from female employees, from victims, 
that their complaints will be swept under the carpet one way or the other. If you're going to take this route, Jeremy explained the evidence that someone would need to provide. He encouraged individuals to seek legal advice sooner rather than later. Jeremy described what a successful case would look like. The more evidence that's, that supports them, the better, quite obviously. So to give you an example, if um, something happened um, behind closed doors and it was a he, shed, he said, she said scenario, then it would, and the only evidence that employee has is effectively her word, then it would be her written evidence of what happened. Now, the more convincing that is, to the investigator, the, be- the better. So, for example, how, many, how much detail can she give? Did she, and this isn't necessarily a criticism of her, but it could be held against her, did she wait two, three, four, five months, a year before making a, uh, um, an allegation? Are there any text messages she can share, internal messages, Slack messages, emails that share that so there was some form of inappropriate relationship? That's where something's happened behind closed doors. Where often we see the case, and this is an issue that comes up a lot, is where there's been a effectively a night out and there's alcohol involved and an employee has said and or done something inappropriate then just as you would in a criminal trial or any sort of civil trial there would be potential witnesses so an employer would be um to act you know to be seen to be acting reasonably would investigate would, would interview as part of their investigation all the witnesses that attended that that night out and obviously they'd consider maybe the impact alcohol has had on people's memory the more contemporary evidence there is the better. If there's a text message dated, whatever the date is of the alleged incident, then that doesn't lie versus people's version of events after the effect, after the passage of time, sometimes after the influence of alcohol, then that can be a bit, you know, a bit more dubious. So that would be helpful. What often happens is, in my experience acting for all, as I said, potentially all three parties in this scenario, is that the male employee may or may not be moved on, um, but moved on discreetly and by that I mean would not often just be dismissed or threatened with a dismissal and sign what's called a settlement agreement and we may come on to this but sort of wrongly referred to as NDAs because an NDA is sometimes a term of a settlement agreement and therefore what happens is sometimes companies take the pragmatic view that that's the best outcome in the circumstances because the female employee sees that the male employee has left the female employee therefore in theory can stay at the employer and the employer doesn't have to deal with litigation from the outgoing male employee because he signed a settlement agreement which waives his rights to do that and hopefully the female employee has some form of redress I suppose. If my client is a female employee sometimes a success is actually a, a good financial settlement if that employee wants to understandably move on is basically securing her future so that she gets another job she's got a reference her her reputation isn't tarnished and she can move on and get some form of compensation rather than roll the dice in litigating incurring costs and most importantly going through quite a traumatic process that's depressing so in a successful case the perpetrator is quietly fired and the victim just receives a lump sum Yeah, it doesn't have quite the same ring of justice as a civil or criminal case, as there's no real mark on the perpetrator. It's more a process of mediating an agreement. And on top of that, the chance of success in an employment tribunal seems slim. The chances of it being successful all the way at tribunal, and a tribunal is basically saying a tribunal judge, um, who's usually, almost always is, a practicing employment lawyer, saying, oh, this is disgraceful, you clearly have been sexually harassed, sexually discriminated against or unfairly dismissed or any of the above and we award you x in in damages that is very very rare 
quite simply because 99% of cases do settle. So the only five, you know, one to five percent do go to tribunal. At the Sexism in the City Treasury hearing, the practice of having victims of sexual harassment settle out and sign NDAs was harshly criticised. Here's panellist Fiona McKenzie, CEO of The Other Half. It is horrendous and it's totally out of line with the working culture of these organisations and it is, there is very much a business problem to solve, that there is somebody in the organisation who is slapping women who've come forward to say, please, please can you help me deal with this man I can't deal with? These women are then being forced out of the organisation, given an NDA, and then because the organisation leaks, every woman in the organisation finds out that this is what happens if you come and speak to your manager. When we asked Jeremy about this, he talked us through the differences between settlement agreements and NDAs. A settlement agreement used to be called a compromise agreement, and the government changed the term for no reason whatsoever, um, was effectively where an employee leaves an employer and they sign an agreement which settles all claims that they might have against that employer. So that is most likely claims for unfair dismissal, discrimination, etc. It's used across the board sort of spectrum of departures. So we deal a lot with it. It's a redundancy and employees being paid off, decent redundancy some sometimes, and they sign an agreement so they don't effectively have their cake and eat it. Um, in this situation where this might apply is where the male employee, for example, Um, has been approached by the employer and said, look, we've had some very serious allegations against you from so-and-so, they may say, Um, we'll investigate this. um, But if you want to sort of agree um, a discrete exit, you can sign the settlement agreement. They may or may not pay them some compensation. They may or may not give them a reference, but it would all be very confidential and they won't sue them. So if they don't sue them, then that reduces the likelihood of reaching the public eye. Where an NDA comes in is there's a term of that settlement agreement. So the settlement agreement might have... 20 pages. So on one page, it may say that this agreement and the circumstances that give rise to it are confidential, other than you can discuss it with your lawyer or with your wife or with your husband, but it can't be discussed um, publicly. But however, that doesn't mean that's shut away in a, in a, in a lockbox. It can never, ever be disclosed other than to a medical professional, a lawyer or a family, because usually there are carve outs and exceptions in that the NDA part of the settlement agreement that says that nothing in this agreement will prevent you raising this or referring to this agreement um, if ordered to by a court, if necessary to report a criminal offence um, or to blow the whistle. Now, I suppose how that really applies is if they come to a settlement agreement with a woman and the woman wants to move on because she's rightfully, understandably sort of traumatised by the experience and she signs a settlement agreement, then she can still sign that agreement. And if she wants to go to the police, needs to disclose it in court, she still can do. Um, and as lawyers, ever since the sort of onset of Me Too, but I think it just goes to our own obligations as lawyers to act, um, to act sort of with integrity, is that we are not allowed to and should not draft or sign off on any um, settlement agreements or NDAs that seek to effectively completely gag employees. But what often happens is employees will be scared because this is maybe a lot of kind of legalese or a little bit sort of technical to, to explain. A lot of employees in the female employee situation will sign a settlement agreement. They may or may not be financially compensated and they will be deterred from sort of raising it publicly. But then the only other option really then is to just not sign a settlement agreement and and to go through litigation, which, whether it's criminal litigation or civil litigation, can always be traumatic, time-consuming, costly, and maybe it's not something someone wants to go a route that someone wants to go down. So an NDA would be a part of a larger settlement agreement, which might include a payout and a dismissal. 
Yeah, but even though Jeremy described these agreements as a best-case scenario, Janus Henderson told us they would never use that kind of contract. In terms of the way that we would handle um, you know, something that was proven, um, we would put that individual through a disciplinary and if it did result in their termination, then we would terminate them. And that would be on the open record and, and not underneath a settlement agreement because if you have breached our standards of behaviour to the extent that you can no longer work for us, then that is the record and that's what's happened. We would also put that through um, a conduct rules breach review. So we do actually already consider um, non-financial misconduct in our conduct rules review process, which I know is something that's out for consultation with the FCA right now. Let's say you have gone through all these HR or legal procedures and the perpetrator has been dismissed from the company. Is that reported to the Financial Conduct Authority? Well, this is where there's some confusion among asset managers. The FCA currently has a regulation called the SMCR, which stands for the Senior Managers and Certifications Regime. It was introduced in 2016 with the aim of assessing whether senior managers or certified staff are fit and proper for their role. But the problem is there is currently little clarity as to what a breach of conduct actually looks like. Many asset managers like Aberdeen are still looking to the FCA for further guidance. I think the fact that the regulator is going to put some examples around this, for example, and uh, or some additional guidance is really welcomed. I think that is definitely a case where uh, there's a real difference from firm to firm. And so I think the the fact that we'll get some consistency from the FCA helps. Wilter, on the other hand, disagreed that more guidance from the regulator is necessary. I would expect most organisations to rely on their own t- internal policies. I mean, it's not beyond the wit of man, is it, to interpret that that's absolutely a breach of code of conduct. I think it's common sense. But yeah, you can, you could list it. Of course you could. But I think most organisations should have a, a decent policy that that provides that clarity and not be relying on the FCA to tell them what's right and wrong. Can't speak for most organisations, but for Quilter, 100% if we dismiss somebody for inappropriate behaviour and they were registered with the FCA, then we would notify the FCA and we'd take the due diligence and care that was required so that that was registered as an individual. So you can see the disparity there. Some firms think the FCA should be keeping track of perpetrators via mandatory reporting, and some think it's simply common sense. At the Treasury hearing, Helena Morrissey shared that because of this lack of clarity, there are many individuals who are never reported. The things that are coming out are multiple, there's no silver bullet as usual. Um, there is um, clear, it's clearly rational. Women see, um, they report something and then the firm investigates, um, gets behind, closes ranks behind the more senior person, going back to the abuse of power issue, and that person <coughs> might be let go, but none, not, they're kept in the system. They are put back, a bad apples put back in the system, uh, but they're very rarely let go. And often the woman ends up leaving the firm and just thinks, I can't deal with this anymore, or her life's made so uncomfortable. So it's very rational for for people to think, well, I'm not going to report something because that might happen to me. I know a sort of people who've been let go twice from a firm, two firms, for sexual harassment. And if you look up their name on the FCA register, and I'm not going to divulge you this, um, of certified people, is absolutely unblemished record. So there's nothing on fitness and propriety, on regulatory reference, on certification regime at present. The SMCR only regulates a specific subset of firm employees. It only regulates and approves senior managers. 
There's no question, however, that the regulator is being called upon now to act. If you have a culture where you are frequently hearing from women who are experiencing sexual harassment in an organisation, what action would they take on that? Because they probably are better placed than you know, advocacy groups or a new, re a new, or new organisation to get into this because they have real powers in, uh, to act against firms who, who breach the rules. We took this straight to the regulator. We sat down with Alicia Kudzierski, head of ESG and DNI at the FCA. We told her that the firms we'd spoken to were looking for more guidance, and we were pretty surprised by what she had to say. There's always a balance to be struck in regulation between providing enough guidance that firms know our expectations and the direction of travel, but also leaving enough so that firms can interpret it for the specific sort of environment that they have. So we're always asked, like, could you give us more? And then when we give more, they say, well, now you're blocking innovation. That is obviously a bit different within this space. But I would say that we've actually provided a very significant amount of, frankly, quite detailed guidance within the proposal. The FCA did recently release a consultation paper on diversity and inclusion in the financial sector in a bid to clamp down on sexual harassment in the workplace. The paper looks to change the scope of code of conduct by emphasizing that sexual harassment in serious cases is a breach of code of conduct. Not everyone is satisfied with the FCA's efforts. Here's what MP Dame Angela Eagle had to say on it. I think that the consultation that they put out is pretty pathetic when it comes to dealing with the issue before us. Harsh words. Well, we asked the FCA what they would have to say to Dame Angela Eagle and others who don't necessarily think that they've made any significant change. Where firms or anybody in the market that thinks that there's anything very specific missing, then please do come back and respond to the consultation. It is open until the 18th of December. However, it is also up to firms to use their judgment. And again, we expect firms to do that. We very much see that this is something that most of them would already have within their own conduct rules, and they are already making these judgments. And it is mm -hmm. part of, frankly, running a firm and, and being able to assess what is a, what is a bad culture, what is non-financial misconduct, etc. Claire Cross, who is a partner at Corker Binning, was a former senior lawyer in the FCA's enforcement division. She explained how, unfortunately, the lack of clear guidance for asset managers is leading to a disparity in decision-making for firms. The biggest concern um, and the biggest problem is that there has been a lack of guidance, full stop, um, which leads to disparity in decision-making in different firms. And so what company A may consider to be a problem, company B may not. What company C considers to potentially be a breach of fit and proper, company D may not. And so we're seeing this huge kind of disparity in outcomes as to how people are being treated within the industry. Despite the need for further guidance, Claire did say that there is a limit to what the regulator can do. I certainly wouldn't brand it as pathetic. The FCA have their own rules and structures that they have to operate within, and there is a limit as to what they can and what they can't do. And I think there's always a concern from the FCA, especially when it comes to issues regarding, for example, sexual misconduct in the workplace or external to the workplace, that they may in effect be trampling on ground, which is better dealt with by other authorities. When it comes to the code of conduct, behaviour of those individuals who fall within the code of conduct, which is for most financial institutions, nearly all of their staff, that will be generally, I would have thought, 
being dealt with through a process internally. If there's a complaint, there'll probably be an internal investigation. And then the outcome of that internal investigation will probably be reported up to the FCA if necessary. And the FCA can then decide whether it wants to take its own enforcement action for a breach of the Code of Conduct. But the FCA stressed to us that it is ultimately up to firms to decide what to report and what counts as a breach of conduct. Ultimately, what is serious and what is not serious under non-financial misconduct, um, these are judgments that firms are making all the time and we expect them to make. It's already in most firms' codes of conduct. However, to support firms in doing so, we actually give a lot of guidance on how to do it. And we do provide non-exhaustive lists of what is and what might not be considered serious misconduct. Some of them, and this is an important one, some of them are automatically serious, and one of those is sexual harassment. One of the challenges on that is that it is also going to be up to the firms to deal with these incidents. So they, and we expect them, and that's one of the things that we clarify in the expectation, we expect them to be able to make those judgment calls and have the processes in place. It is also up to firms, ultimately, to assess how candidates are fit and proper. So the liability sits with them if they are not taking those checks into account, if they're not being sufficiently diligent in ensuring that the people that they're proposing to take on regulated posts or SMCR are not fit for purpose. We were a bit confused. According to the recent consultation paper, the scope of code of conduct has expanded to include serious instances of bullying, harassment, and similar behavior towards employees. We asked Claire to elaborate on what exactly this means and what the FCA currently considers serious workplace misconduct. The guidance sets out what it considers serious to be. So it's less to do with the um, issue of conviction. It's more to do with, in these circumstances, what the actual underlying misconduct is. Is the underlying misconduct serious? The FCA are not going to want to get involved if it's a one-off instance that someone uses arguably a derogatory term towards somebody else. They are going to probably want to be involved if there is a sustained period of that sort of behaviour, that it causes particular upset, and that they'll take into consideration all sorts of issues, such as the seniority of the person involved and the effect that it has had on the victim. So serious is outlined. What it doesn't do is give you a list of this is serious, but this is not serious. It gives the criteria to allow that decision to be made where necessary by a firm or by the investigation team at the FCA. The FCA has only publicly prohibited seven individuals for non-financial misconduct, including sexual assault, possession of child pornography, voyeurism and non-payment for railway tickets. Here Claire's talking about the prohibition of Mark Horsey and Frank Koshran. While Horsey was convicted of voyeurism having recorded his tenant having a shower without their consent, Koshran was convicted of sexual assault outside of the workplace. Both received prison sentences. I think the FCA has, as it does with many initiatives that it rolls out, it starts kind of on an easy level. It takes what it thinks are easy wins to get itself bedded in. And if you've got a criminal conviction, as for example, I think it was in with uh, Horsey and Cochrane, those offences that were all related in some way to voyeurism or sexual misconduct, 
that was, I think, the FCA thought an easy win. And traditionally, individuals, when they were being told that they were being banned from the industry for that, they had kind of bigger things on their plate to worry about, perhaps, and were less inclined to try and push up any sort of defence to it. Now, we saw a change in that approach in the case of John Frensham, who was an individual who did not take the FCA's suggestion that he be prohibited lying down and took his case all the way to the upper tribunal. And actually, the upper tribunal gave a really interesting ruling. They did eventually prohibit him, but they didn't prohibit him, interestingly, just by dint of the criminal conviction. They said that the FCA had to be able to show some sort of link to their statutory objectives in order for him to be prohibited from the industry. And they were not convinced that merely having a criminal conviction, even if it was, as it were, in the case of Mr Frencham for a child grooming style offence, that would not be sufficient for someone to be banned. And so I think that did kind of put the FCA on a, on a back foot. Quickly, for your information, John Frensham was convicted of attempting to meet a child following sexual grooming. Of these past instances, it does seem like the FCA has so far gone for easy pickings. We did bring this up with the FCA, and this is what they had to say. Criminal conviction is not our bar for action. And when we think about the individuals and when firms propose individuals to take on either senior manager or other responsibilities, then they need to declare everything. They need to do background checks. We are not the police and we don't expect firms to be. We should mention that the sector is not necessarily unanimous in its call for the FCA to take action against sexual harassment. We've heard from some, although it is a minority, that sexual harassment does not fall under the regulator's remit. Kitsiski categorically disagreed with this. Ultimately, it really is, because if we go back into what our objectives are around consumer protection, market integrity, competition, and the competitiveness of the UK, sexual harassment and, and cultures that enable that or allow it or don't respond quickly enough to it. That is a culture issue. Culture has, for now, a very long time been a part of how we consider firms. So it's a very established way in how we think about firms. And for us, that has been an important part of the FCA supervisory approach, because if you take into account that a poor culture and people are seeing sexual harassment and not responding to it, then what else might be happening without, within that firm? What else do people not feel able to raise or to challenge senior management on? What other practices exist within that firm that are either potentially going to impact negatively on consumers or on risk or on market integrity. For us, it is part and parcel. Claire made the point that although the FCA is not necessarily concerned with protecting individuals from sexual harassment, the regulator is concerned with protecting the industry from sexual harassment because it's bad for business. I don't think it's necessarily aimed at protecting, for example, individuals who work in financial services the aim is solely to identify behaviour that may cause a risk to either of those of the FCA's objectives. So what's our conclusion? From our conversations, we have to say we're a little bit disheartened. Who really has responsibility for protecting financial employees from sexual harassment? It seems like asset managers are looking for more guidance from the FCA and what to report and what not to report. But the FCA is passing the buck back to asset managers, outlining that ultimately, the decision on what counts as a breach of conduct is up to firms. 
This in turn leads to what Helena Morrissey dubbed bad apples going back into the system, a vicious game of hot potato whereby responsibility is shifted from institution to institution. You can go to HR to report the instance, but unfortunately, the department is ultimately responsible for the company. Individuals who choose to come forward may not feel confident in the process. And more importantly, they might not get the outcome they're looking for. If you want to take legal action, you ultimately have to shoulder the cost of representation. And what's more, a successful case is both rare and likely to end in a settlement agreement. In turn, the instance is never reported, and round and round we go. So is it all over? Perhaps not. We spoke to another institution, the media. Tortoise Media award-winning journalist Paul Carona Galizia joined us in the studio. Paul was one of the journalists that broke the FT story on Chris Benotti. He discussed why victims of sexual harassment and assault so often turn to the press. Paul told us how the women he spoke to felt failed by both the regulator and their HR department. He touched on Helena Morrissey's bad apples concept, highlighting how women are settled out quietly until the next instance arises. Uh, sadly, as is often the case, internal HR departments are these kind of catch and kill units. So women go to them with allegations of harassment, sometimes even assault, and they're dissuaded um, from pursuing the complaint or just settled out quietly which is fine in a way. The problem with that is the next woman comes along unaware that there'd been um, one complaint, many complaints in this case, goes through the same thing herself, is quietly settled out and the process repeats. In these scenarios, turning to the press can be trickier if women have signed an NDA. Again, as a reporter, you can never tell a source and I certainly never tell sources breach this private contract you mm. signed. What you can and should do is say, no private contract can conflict with public policy. There's no NDA that can stop you from disclosing really serious allegations. Thankfully, ever since all the Me Too reporting from the end of, what was it, October 2017, you know, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, there's been so much coverage of NDAs and how they're misused and so on, especially here in the UK. A lot of resources have developed around, you know, what a good NDA is, what it shouldn't do. Mm. And so you can direct sources to that, that information. Paul also touched on the FCA's limitations when it comes to dealing with sexual misconduct. A lot of these institutions have to work in secret. So the, the FCA will always tell you we can't, we can't talk about ongoing investigations because it's prejudicial. It will weaken our case and so on. That may be true and right, but it also provides them with this cover for what we discovered during the OD reporting for not doing very much, actually. Although this is a pretty harsh criticism of the FCA, it's one that was mirrored at the Treasury hearing. Paul and others think this case was an example of institutional failure. The problem is, is it indicative of a wider attitude towards sexual harassment in the industry? I began to wonder if the FCA can't come to a decision in this case, then, then like what is it doing across the whole sector? Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about a lot of, of women with very similar allegations over a very long period of time. A major case, 
And you have to assume there are a lot of other smaller cases which are being handled in a maybe even worse way. It's a fair point. If the FCA continues to rely on criminal convictions to enforce action against individuals, is it really regulating non-financial misconduct? And with that, we end our podcast with a call to action. If the institutions in the city aren't responsible for protecting them, individuals who have experienced harassment are left responsible for themselves. It's the bare minimum that they should be equipped with an understanding of what their resources are. We also remind you that the FCA's consultation paper is open until the 18th of December this year. The City Watchdog will use your feedback to develop finalized rules which are due to be published in 2024. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us to discuss anything we've talked about in this podcast, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please email me, Caroline Hug, at chug at citywire.co.uk. Or me, Olivia Bibble, at obybel at citywire.co.uk. This is Caroline Hug. And this is Olivia Bibble. And thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by CityWire Studios. We'd like to thank John Schaefer for editing this podcast. We'd also like to thank all of our guests for their candor and insight, including Heather Inglis, Rachel Whelans, Penny Cole, Jeremy Coy, Claire Cross, Alicia Kidzierski, and Paul Caruana Galizia. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.